Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the second edition of the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a new bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Baxt. I'm Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. I want to thank you for listening as we try and clarify what goes into the price of gas at the pump. When discussing a supply chain like the food supply chain, it's not too difficult to explain because most people recognize the major players, and in addition, they have a general idea of what these players do. The oil supply chain isn't as clear. There are three major sectors within the industry. Depending on where they fall in the supply chain, you have the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors. We're going to discuss who the players are in these sectors and what they do and the challenges they're facing that are driving up gas prices. The costs and obstacles across the supply chain contribute to the pain we're currently experiencing at the pump. And for the week ending July 18th, the pain was an average retail gas price of $4.49 per gallon. This is about 90% higher than the prices that existed when President Biden took office. By better understanding the oil supply chain, it can help us better understand gas prices and to dispel harmful myths. To help with this understanding, I'm joined by two leading oil and gas experts, James Coleman is professor of law at SMU, where he focuses on energy law and does extensive research and teaching on the oil and gas industry. And Katie Tubb is research fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. So let's get right to it. First, James and Katie, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, James, let me start with you. I, I think to provide the foundation for our discussion, we need to understand some basics of the oil industry. So could you clarify to us what is meant by the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors of the oil industry, and who are the key players within each of these sectors? Yeah, so usually you can imagine oil as you know running from the wells where it's produced downhill to like a river to the people that use all those oil products, diesel, gasoline, uh, jet fuel, etc. So when people talk about upstream, midstream, and downstream, usually what they mean when they talk about upstream, they're talking about the oil and gas companies that actually pump oil out of the ground at the source. And that's a mix of some of those big companies that you've likely heard of, yeah, ExxonMobil, Chevron, etc., and lots of smaller companies, really thousands of smaller companies and mid-sized companies that produce oil uh, across the United States. Right now, a lot of the places where they're actually producing more oil is in the Permian Basin, which is in western Texas and on the border with New Mexico. Now, midstream is the folks that carry that oil from the fields where it's produced to the refineries that turn it into the products we use, gasoline, etc. And so those midstream folks have pipelines mostly. It's basically for transport 
of that oil and gas to the refining, uh, refineries and processing centers where it's turned into final products. So those midstream companies would be like Enbridge, like Energy Transfer uh, Partners, the company that, um, that built the Dakota Access Pipeline, et cetera. So those are the midstream companies. Then the downstream companies within the oil industry, they're mostly talking about those refiners. And there's uh, a lot of uh, the U.S., historically has had a lot of the world's capacity for refining, turning that oil and gas into the products that consumers use, gasoline into diesel fuel, etc. And a lot of that is done in the United States on the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana. And some of those refineries where it's done are very old. Some of the biggest ones in the United States are over 100 years old, and they're owned by you know, companies like Marathon, uh, Exxon, etc., now, sometimes when people talk about upstream and downstream, they just mean in a relative sense. So they mean, you know, if you're in the refinery, in some ways, the pipeline industry is upstream of you and the consumers who actually use your gasoline project are downstream of you. But usually when people are talking about it, upstream is production in the fields, midstream is the pipelines, and downstream is the um, production, yeah, is the refineries. Okay, great. Um, well, that helps a lot, and uh, and then downstream also would include the kind of the gas stations themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of sometimes, often people would mean that as well. Okay, so so Katie, um, let's take kind of imagine kind of the overall costs that kind of go into the gas prices. If you were to make up a pie chart for the costs impacting regular retail gas prices. What percentage of the cost would be for crude oil, refining, and other major categories? Well, I'll start at the the smallest piece of that pie chart and, and build up. So about 5% is for distribution and marketing. Um, 11% right now is for state and federal taxes, and that definitely depends on what state you live in because there are some states that heavily tax gasoline, uh, California, Washington, Illinois being among the highest in that uh, category. States like Texas, New Mexico, Arizona being on the lower end of that spectrum. So it does matter where you live. Uh, 26% right now is about for refining. And then the biggest component is for crude oil at 59%. And all of these percentages adjust monthly uh, depending on prices and um, what of the of those prices builds into that biggest component of uh, a, a gallon of gasoline. But crude oil is always the biggest, and that has certainly been the, the driver of gasoline prices um, historically and over, especially recently as we've had very high crude oil prices in the United States and globally. So if you think that being the biggest piece of that pie chart, uh, you, you can kind of boil it down to as the price of crude goes up, the price of gasoline goes up. And about two, two and a half cents of the price of gasoline that you see at the the gas station, that's what you get for every dollar of increase in the price of crude oil. So for every dollar of increase in the the price of crude oil, that 59% piece of that pie chart there of the price of gasoline, you see a 2.4 cent uh, increase in the gallon in a gallon of gas. Sorry, that was very hard for me to get out. <laughs> I think great. you get the picture. No, I do. I get the picture. And uh, so the Crude oil, really important. Um, is there any additional data you have? Um, what, what are like prices or 
anything you can provide us and get some context? Well, we we've kind of been all over the place. So we had a, a high of the in the hundred and twenty dollar range. Um, we've come down quite a bit in the last couple weeks, months uh, to about a, hovering right around a hundred dollars a barrel. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion about you know is this uh, here to stay for a while? Are we headed to a recession? Um, in which case, you know, demand for oil goes down. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about where the direction of the price of crude oil is going and what the implications are for gasoline prices. Certainly the the Biden administration is uh, relieved to see some uh, lower crude oil prices, and they're they're making uh, a bit of a victory lap on the policy front, but I think we can get more into why I think that's uh, a very false narrative around the price of crude oil and consequently the price of gasoline. Yeah, yeah, I saw that victory lap that they're thrilled that prices are still close to double <laughs> what they were when President Biden took office, which kind of tells you something. Yeah, well, and to that end, Darren, you know, I looked at the the prices just before this. Uh, gasoline is still a dollar thirty three per gallon, more than it was last year, and last year wasn't good. <laughs> diesel is uh, over two dollars per gallon, more than it was last year, and again, last year's prices for diesel weren't good. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that, but there are certainly policy choices that are being made that influence those prices. So, James, let's get back to you, and let's talk about the upstream sector. And what are some of the major challenges right now in the upstream sector that are impacting gas prices? Yeah, so I'd say I'd really divide it into three big challenges. And, you know, one is something that the government, you know, didn't necessarily have a lot of control over. Second one, a little bit of control over. And the third one is completely within its control. So the so one of the challenges, of course, is just that we had we had the global economy, um, you know, a sharp contraction associated with COVID. And so across the global economy, there were a lot of businesses that ramped down their production because of that uh, sharp slowdown. And so it can sometimes take a while to ramp your production back up because you you have a bunch of equipment that you stop maintaining, et cetera, and you need to get it back out there. The second thing that's happening is that there's a lot of uncertainty about what energy policy is going to be going forward. Because if you look at the promises that the world uh, and the Biden administration keeps making on uh, climate, uh, on climate change, et cetera, a lot of times they say, well, we're going to keep warming to 1.5 degrees or we're going to you know, go to net zero over an incredibly aggressive timeline. Um, and if that were the case, I mean, unfortunately, it would impoverish us all, but it would also, um, you wouldn't need much oil and gas because in a much poorer world, you don't, you don't need as much. And so, you know, there's, um, and I think one difficulty that a lot of companies are having is they're saying, well, you know, we've never done that in the past. In the past, we have also put a priority on economic growth and prosperity. But, you know, the Biden administration is saying it wants to do this. And there's other policymakers and even other investors around the world saying they want to do this. And so that leads to a lot of uncertainty. And so companies really don't know whether they should invest in increased capacity for the future. Uh, and then the, the third thing is a series of you know, very specific policy decisions that the Biden administration has made to restrain oil and gas 
production. And so that is you know, the thing that, of course, the Biden administration has the most control over. And you know, there I'm thinking of things like uh, revoking the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline, revoking permit for expansion at refineries, uh, preventing new leasing of land for oil and gas development, uh, preventing a um, rolling back reforms designed to make it easier to build new energy infrastructure. And so those are some things that are holding back increased oil and gas production and creating problems uh, for the upstream industry. So, James, you mentioned leasing. What are some recent developments um, impacting both onshore and offshore leasing? Well, this has become a uh, – this has – it really changes every week. But I think the important thing to understand is you know, in the United States, if you have private land, often you're going to own the oil and gas under that land. So a lot of oil and gas production in the United States happens on private land. So when the federal government – you know, the easiest thing for the federal government to control in terms of stopping oil and gas production or encouraging oil and gas production, encouraging lower prices, is focusing on areas where the federal government has control. And there's two different areas where the federal government has control. One is on federal lands. And as it turns out, a lot of the oil and gas production that we've seen just right leading up to the pandemic was in uh, New Mexico and that west side of the Permian Basin in areas that was federal uh, federal land. So there was actually a lot of um, production um, that had been starting up there. And then also in offshore. So you know, if you go more than three nautical miles or nine nautical miles off Texas, that's going to be federal offshore. And there the federal government has control. Now, when the Biden administration came in, at first they issued an extremely radical order that said, we're not going to lease new land for oil and gas development, but also we're not even going to grant permits for development of leases that have already been granted. So you can't even, of course, need a permit to drill a well, so you can't even uh, drill a well. Now that expired after 60 days, and so now it just applies to leasing. But they said, well, we don't want to do any leasing because we want to reduce oil and gas development. Uh, that was struck down by a federal court. And so, you know, reluctantly, and they said, well, we're trying to, we don't really want to offer anything and we're going to appeal that decision, but we're going to go ahead and offer lease. And they did that in November, but then that was struck down by another federal court. And, you know, at that point, the Biden administration breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, we don't need to do it. So then, you know, the question is, are they going to actually um, offer any leases at all uh, and they recently issued a plan that said, well, maybe, maybe not. And we have a lot of continuing drama about that because you know, one of the things that reportedly Senator Manchin was negotiating for as part of the uh, reconciliation bill on energy and climate was for the Biden administration to go ahead with federal leases. Now that it looks like maybe that's off, one question is whether the Biden administration will still go ahead with federal leases. And really, I mean, again, the easiest thing to look at if the Biden administration wanted to increase oil and gas production, in other words, if they wanted to lower the cost of fuel for consumers that we all experience at the pump, they would offer more federal leases. That's the thing that they have the most control over, and they haven't done it, 
even, you know, they've been, it's been very difficult to get to them to do it even when they had a court order ordering them to do that. So I think that's the easiest way to tell. They don't want more oil and gas production. So I think James kind of touched on some of these things, uh, Katie. Some people, including those in the Biden administration, would point to the, hey, there's all these high number of unused federal leases, so stop your whining. Uh, the oil industry isn't even taking advantage of what they already have. How do you respond to that claim? Well, I think it's uh, helpful to think of leases as a, a funnel. You've got the, the widest end on the top, and it gradually narrows down. And so with leases, uh, there's no guarantee that there's usable or economically uh, worthwhile uh, energy down there. So you have to start with quite a large number of leases and over years of exploration, research, development, um, laying down infrastructure studies, permits, you narrow that down to the handful of leases that you think are actually worth investing further in. Um, So I think that's part of the equation. And I think another part of this is uh, leases aren't permits. So just because you have a lease doesn't mean you have the permits to actually do all of the activities I just talked about, let alone actually producing the energy. So uh, the administration has been quite uh, irregular in their um, reviewing and issuing of permits, uh, and some of that has depended on how much political heat they are or aren't getting for uh, their review process. Um, And certainly litigation plays a role in that permitting. Uh, There's a lot of not just leases but permits that have been or are still in litigation. And certainly the administration is welcoming of many of those and um, has not pushed uh, the process forward in any kind of efficient sense. Uh, And all of this matters because, you know, producing energy on federal lands is not only very time-consuming and bureaucratically intensive, but all energy production is expensive and the timelines are long. And so when you increase political risk like this, um, it, it dissuades people from making the financial investments, the labor investments, the infrastructure investments to actually produce that energy. So, you know, I think that uh, talking point of the administration is banking on people not understanding the process, and it's definitely a red herring to push away any kind of um, ownership of the problem. But certainly the administration, I think, uh, does own this problem. So, so Katie, the it seems to me, and, and I think you're saying this, is that the, the the leases can actually kind of be used as a smokescreen. You can kind of say, oh, look, you know, they're not using leases, or even if you did offer, you know, some leases for, for sale and you kind of expand the leases, you could make it so impossible that it would just be kind of a, a moot point anyway because you can't really do anything with the leases. Just through the, the permitting, welcoming of lawsuits uh, with the litigation – so you kind of almost ha- have a facade that you're actually welcoming of production and what you're doing really is actually making it difficult. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, it is one way of many ways to talk out of both sides of your mouth. So, James, do you have – you know, what's your take on this unused lease myth? I think the most important thing to understand is that there's 
I'm not aware of any serious energy analyst on any side of the spectrum that thinks this is a serious argument. I mean, this is this is a very, very silly argument. Yeah, and if you read closely, even the Biden administration's supporters, you can see them kind of sigh or groan when he makes that argument because it's absurd. Uh, you know, uh, Katie's absolutely right. Of course, there's, there's a bunch of huge problems with it. I mean, I think the important thing to understand is there's always unused leases, and there always has been. This is nothing different because there it takes a long time to get a permit, in part because of you know environmental review requirements that the Biden administration has increased. It uh, you also may not have oil and gas. Even if you get your permit to drill, you may find that there is no oil and gas. But you know fundamentally, it's just kind of a silly argument. Obviously, the um, you know, if there was a lot of oil on this lease and they had the permit to drill, they would do it. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody said, well, it's not a problem that it's so expensive to live in New York City because you can build as many skyscrapers as you want to in South Dakota. That doesn't really answer the question. If you wanted more homes to be built, if you wanted more, you would make it possible to build them in New York City. And so the same way, if the Biden administration wanted more oil and gas production, it would make that possible where the oil and gas companies wanted to drill for oil and gas. So it's a very, it's a very silly argument. I think it's important to understand. Nobody really takes it seriously. They don't, I, I'm, they don't believe that either. So James, I'd like to turn to kind of some innovation in the production. So, and, and there's been a lot of innovation in crude oil production, like fracking, which helps to increase supplies. Just wondering, are there any obstacles right now that are blocking some of the innovation? Well, you know, there is an obstacle, and this is something that it's very difficult for the Biden administration um, to kind of walk back. And it's the one that I talked about earlier, which is that in the oil and gas industry in general, they're facing this fundamental uncertainty about whether the world is serious about these promises to rapidly go off oil and gas. And frankly, the the Oil and gas companies don't know what to think. So a lot of the you know, energy statistics and projections that you see around, uh, around you know, the world are from these um, BP, you know, the British Petroleum, uh, super major oil company. And during the pandemic, they put forward projections for future oil consumption, and they said, well, maybe people are really serious about this climate goals, oil consumption is never going to come back. And so their projections were for that. So basically, oil and gas companies, for the most part, had not been taking these projections too seriously. But then with the Biden administration coming in, et cetera, they said, well, maybe they really are serious and we're not going to have that much oil and gas uh, production in the future. And so as a result, you saw a lot less investment in oil and gas as well as in oil and gas innovation. So, you know, one thing... Just as an example, we've seen that a lot of the automakers, they have stopped investing as much in improving their uh, engines, their, um, their gasoline engines. And that's a real problem going forward because if, as every time in the past, we keep going with the gasoline economy because it's just it's so much more useful than other sources of energy, if you know, we make the choice hey, you know, we, we care about climate change, but we can't, um, but, you know, we can't impoverish ourselves. We have to uh, consider other things as well. 
then we're going to have a lot of technology that really is stagnant and not improving because companies were taking those arguments seriously that we're really going to radically cut back uh, oil use. So, um, and, you know, I think the Biden administration, if it wanted to change that and the way that energy companies are thinking about it, where they're kind of afraid to invest for the future, I think they would have to indicate that they did a real change of heart and that seeing these high prices, they've really realized, you know, President Biden during the campaign, he said, you know, look at my eyes, I'm going to end fossil fuel. If he, you know, if he really wanted to come out and say he had a change of heart, that would change a lot of things. And just saying, you know, I understand that fossil fuels have a role to play in the future. We're going to try and address the environmental impact as well. I think that would change how the oil and gas companies are looking at investing in innovation for the future. Just to give a, a, a bit of context to what James is saying, and I know these are bigger picture things, but uh, you know, 90% of Americans' transportation energy needs are met by oil products. <laughs> so when we talk about transitions politically and you know policy-wise, we need to keep that reality in mind that uh, oil products are a huge part of what makes our lives work and our uh, ability to be productive and um, pursue prosperity and simple things like getting to school or getting to work. So, you know, I think this bigger picture of policy is uh, in one sense a lot about bumper stickers and aspirations and not anything to do with what what is energy use in the real world and what are the human implications for forcing a transition by way of policy and regulation? So I know we're getting kind of on a tangent, but I think James brings up some of these bigger picture frameworks that, that make this conversation important and interesting because a lot of what we're seeing in prices uh, with gasoline have to do with these big picture policy questions that James is talking about. Okay, that's great that you brought that up. Um let me get to something really specific, actually, that is a potential development. And we, we've talked about the Permian Basin a bit today already. So the, the Biden administration may declare parts of the Permian Basin to be what's called in non-attainment in meeting the EPA's ozone standards. And ozone would mean ground-level ozone like smog, and they set standards. And non-attainment means that they're – most of that designation is basically saying that they're not meeting those standards and there's meaning to that. Um, why would that be harmful in, when it comes to oil and natural gas production? Um, well, I, you know, I think that's taking the, the big picture of what we were just talking about and giving a very specific example of the application of these big picture policies. And so certainly, you know, the EPA has talked now about uh, turning one of the largest oil and gas, natural gas uh, fields in the United States uh, into a non-attainment zone for these smog regulations. So that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, we talked earlier about leases, which is generally federal lands and waters. The Permian Basin is uh, largely in the state of Texas, which is almost entirely privately owned or state owned. So it doesn't have the same um, connection to the leasing problem we were talking about earlier. So this is one of these kind of backdoor ways that the administration is trying to target not just federally owned uh, land and waters, but also 
the private side of this and trying to um, get at a means of choking production on state and private lands. The other thing I'll say is uh, the ozone regulations are interesting because it basically, um, this is oversimplifying, but it, it basically creates a cap and trade system to in order to comply with those um, standards, air, uh, air standards. So it, it basically uh, would limit the amount of production so as to comply with these Clean Air Act standards. And certainly there's um, an interesting political discussion there because everybody wants clean air. But what the EPA is seems to be considering has very little to do with clean air and much more to do with this bigger picture that James was talking about earlier of climate policy and net zero and getting rid of fossil fuels in the United States. Well, a lot of regulation, a lot of policies are, you know, the agencies will put kind of pretend that one policy is to address an issue when it's a fact a pretext for achieving this other objective, which, of course, in this context would be getting rid of fossil fuels, um, dealing with climate change. And it seems to be a lot of that kind of pretextual types of regulation in the EPA and within the Biden administration. So so let's turn to the midstream sector, Katie, and uh, I, I want to talk about challenges that refineries are having. We've talked a lot about production. What are refineries dealing with right now? Well, so refineries take the actual uh, natural resource of crude oil and turn it into something useful. And there's all kinds of crude oil products, gasoline being one of them, diesel and other jet fuel, um, many more. But uh, refineries are, in some sense, that choke point that turns something useless into something useful. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure on refineries uh for a variety of reasons, but I, you know, I think I'll focus on some of the policy side of these uh, pressure points. One of them is the renewable fuel standard. Um, compliance costs to meet these uh, renewable fuel mandates set by Congress and the EPA, uh, those compliance costs are at record highs right now. Um, according to AFPM, that adds renewable fuel standard uh, requirements add about 20 cents per gallon to uh, the gasoline price. So that's certainly one piece of this. Uh, There are pressures from states as well that mirror a lot of what we're seeing at the federal level. States like California uh, work very hard to force markets in the direction of uh, their preferred ends, which is a lot of biofuels and penalizing um, gasoline and diesel as we know them. Uh, And so refineries have to respond to these uh, state-level mandates as well to uh, comply. Um, and then there's also a subsidy angle here where these biofuels, biodiesel, are subsidized at the federal and state level, uh, and that certainly distorts markets, and we're seeing some of the implications of that with uh, a number of refineries closing, not just for uh, 2020 COVID uh market disruption reasons, but also in response to uh, some of these pressures, as well as uh, not just closing, but in other cases, entirely retooling so as to uh, produce these renewable fuels. Um, And the bigger picture here is the United States went from being the largest refining industry uh, in the world to now having lost quite a bit of capacity, I think about a third 
of global capacity losses in the last couple of years happened in the United States. And it's it's because of these either closures or temporary closures to retool for biodiesel. The problem there, I think, is, you know, these mandates and subsidies, are they reflecting actual customer demand or are they reflecting what politicians and bureaucrats want? And time and time again, we see how that creates problems down the road, a lot of friction um, and Consumers pay the cost for that. So, James, you talked some about the pipelines, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about the pipelines. Um, just briefly, really quick, the, the, what is the importance of pipelines to transporting oil in this country? Well, they're very important. It's the most efficient way to transport oil. I mean, one advantage of oil over some of our cleaner sources, like natural gas and renewable energy, is that there are other ways to transport oil. You could ship it by rail or by truck, uh, but there are some downsides to doing that. So when you have overland transport of oil, your best option is going to be uh, pipelines. And, you know, in fact, the U.S. historically has had a very, uh, had a, you know, very liquid oil market in the sense of you could send oil wherever you need it because it had a strong uh, pipeline sector. And, um, and so, you know, obviously one of the big challenges in recent years has been building new pipelines, um, and that has gotten much more difficult over time. And quickly, James, what are some of the other transportation and distribution challenges that are going on right now? First, let me say one more thing about oil pipelines, which is that the, uh, you know, I think this is something that people know about other infrastructure in our country, which is that we have a lot of aging infrastructure because it's been so difficult to build new infrastructure. But I think people, because pipelines are below the ground, you don't see them. You might walk over one or drive over one every day. Um, they aren't aware of how uh, big a problem that is. Because if you look at more than half of the pipelines in the United States were built before 1970. And so one thing that, um, so they're more than 50 years old. And so, you know, one thing that we could talk about across the energy industry is how the National Environmental Policy Act, which mandates environmental reviews that for a full environmental review will take over five years, has been slowing down construction of all new products, uh, projects, all new leasing, et cetera. And that's absolutely applied to pipelines. So if you look at, that was adopted in 1970. And basically, if you look at any infrastructure in the country, most of it, whether it's the highway system or pipelines, et cetera, was built before 1970. So it's more than 50 years old because it's now so difficult to build those new projects. So, you know, because we don't have all the pipelines we need, there's other challenges because we have to find other ways to transport um, these fuels as markets change. And so, you know, one challenge has been uh, the, you know, for sea transport of oil, now with the U.S. being the world's biggest oil producer, it would be great if we could get oil to the U.S. East Coast. Now we don't, um, which needs some of that oil. Now we don't have a lot of pipelines that actually um, run in that direction that would enable us to transfer oil um, to the U.S. East Coast. We have some um, in fact, some of the pipelines we still use were built as an emergency measure during World War II, but since we haven't been able to build new ones, we just keep using those, uh, the big inch and little inch pipelines from Texas. But uh, so instead, we could ship it uh, by boat, but the problem there is uh, the Jones Act, which really limits 
oil transport uh, between U.S. ports. So, James, I'm glad that you brought up the Jones Act, um, and that's that's some really great history, actually, that I certainly didn't know. Katie, any any thoughts on the Jones Act since, since James brought it up? Just some real quick points on it. Yeah, so the, the Jones Act is over 100 years old now, and it basically requires uh, transportation between two U.S. ports to take place on ships that are U.S. built, manned, and flagged. Uh, so it severely limits shipping uh, options. And it also increases the prices. So when uh, the Northeast or particularly California or outlying states like uh, Alaska, Hawaii, um, places like Puerto Rico, they have to rely on shipping uh, in part or certainly in the case of the Northeast because they have chosen not to rely on pipelines. And so that limits uh, both their options and increases prices when it comes to products like gasoline. So let's get to the downstream sector. I mean, this is definitely going to be way downstream. Um, <clears throat> we're going to look at gas stations. So I want to focus on dispelling some myths, and let's just just going to kind of go through several myths. Um, so James, I'll start with you. Um, who owns the gas stations? Is it the major oil companies? Usually not. So actually, more than half of gas stations are owned by just an individual person or family that owns a single uh, owns a single gas station. So you know when you see Shell on the you know on the sign of the gas station, you might think, oh, the you know Shell Oil Company owns that. But no, it's actually just a franchise. So they're owned um, typically by you know uh, individual an individual or an individual uh, family uh, owns the vast majority of these gas stations. You know, Katie, I hear a lot of people complaining like, you know, why do gas prices vary so much from station to station and why is it so much different across the states? So how would you answer that? Well, you know, I mentioned uh, state level taxes earlier that there's a huge difference amongst states in how they tax gasoline uh, and diesel. There's local taxes as well. Um, states and metropolitan areas also require different, I'll call them boutique blends, and some of those are very expensive. Um, and that, again, has to do with either uh, Clean Air Act type standards or how uh, harshly they want to penalize gasoline policy choice. Um, and then there's other things like real estate uh, and those kinds of taxes. And we all know that uh, depending on where you live, those can vary quite widely. And then finally, I'll just say um, wholesale prices and demand uh, changes based on where you live, um, how quickly a gasoline station can actually turn over uh, supply and how that impacts uh, their contracting for new supply. James, are, are gas stations being greedy when they increase prices? Could, and, and could you explain the competitive landscape for gas stations, including profit margins? Yeah, so, you know, like every company that ever existed, of course, the company has to make uh, a profit, otherwise it wouldn't exist. But the, you know, when you see changes in prices, that is about supply and demand. So when prices are low, it doesn't mean the companies are feeling generous that week. And when prices are high, it doesn't mean they're feeling greedy that week. The changes in prices are about supply and demand. And, you know, basically... Um, what's happened since the pandemic is a lot of pricing is, uh, you know, we lost a lot of capacity for production across the board in um, not just in, you know, in gasoline and fuel markets, but in other markets as well. And so a lot of times what you're seeing with pricing is basically 
places using pricing to make sure they don't run out, right? And in fact, um, we have been running out of oil for well over a year. So if you take all of 2021, we were, as a world, consuming 100 million barrels per day of oil, but we were only producing 98 million barrels per day of oil. And you say, well, there's 2 million barrels per day of oil missing. How did we you know, how do we survive the year? Well, the way we survived the year was that we just drew down our stores of oil across the globe. Anybody who had some oil stored and could sell it, sold it, right? And now it's gotten to the point where our refineries across the United States, you know, as Katie said, we've shut down a lot. Um, the Biden administration has, um, you know, has shut down some. Some have made business decisions to shut down. We have done a lot of, um, we've done a lot of things to you know, reduce our refinery capacity, the ones that we have left are running full out. And even at the high prices that we're seeing, right? You know, we've had high prices for a year, and even so, we're drawing down our oil stores, and our refineries are going full out, and we're barely keeping up with demand. Even though you might think, uh, you know, four fifty for a gallon of gasoline, that's going to discourage people from consuming. So the, the thing that happens is that you can't, you know, if every country in the United States just said today, you know what, we're going to run without profit for a week, right? And we're going to cut our prices, you know, to 430, 425. Well, that's going to tick up the, gasol the gasoline consumption across the United States, and you'll literally run out, right? So generally what happens, if you want to lower prices, you that means you're going to have shortages where people are not going to be able to purchase gasoline at gas stations. And, of course, that's what happened during the 70s. So, you know, we know what happens. If you lower those prices, you run out. And so, um, so that's, I think it's important to understand that, you know, those price changes are about supply and demand. I encourage people, you know, if you see variation, you know, there's a lot of variation, as Katie explained, between states and cities for the reasons she mentioned. But if you see variation between, you know, different, um, you know, gas stations, go to the cheaper one. Absolutely. Go to the cheaper one. It's all the same. But it's important to understand that those prices are determined as a matter of supply and demand and to make sure we don't run out. Well, I think you just gave my answer regarding price gouging um, and why there's not price gouging going on. So that's great. Well, you know, and let me, I could say, I mean, I'm happy to say one more thing about price gouging. Again, this, this is not a serious argument, and nobody thinks it's a serious argument. I mean, there, you know, this is, um, again, it's like if you watch carefully, you will see the Biden administration supporters sigh and groan when he makes this kind of argument because it is transparently absurd. So, you know, so Larry Summers, probably the most prominent Democratic economist. He worked for President Obama. He worked for President uh, Clinton. And I thought he said it best. He said... It doesn't make any sense at all to blame, you know, this kind of price rises on market power. It's not serious economic reasoning. And if somebody says something like that, you should be taken less, they should be taken less seriously as a consequence. So I think it's important to understand these are absurd arguments. Everyone knows they're, uh, everyone knows they're absurd. You don't need to pay attention to them. You certainly have hammered home the, the principles of supply and demand, but I'm going to hammer it some more. And that is the Biden administration is pretty much doing, in my opinion, doing, let's say, a lot uh, to restrict supply. And quite simply, what that means is it's going to drive up prices. And if you force gas stations to 
charge prices that you think are should be lower than that. And just as you said, it's going to lead to to shortages. Prices are a signal to consumers. It helps to try to ensure that we don't have shortages and trying to kind of distort the market by trying to dictate what prices are proper or appropriate is, first of all, the government doing something they have no business doing or no, knowing they wouldn't have a clue how to do it. And what they'll do is they will artificially create shortages. In fact, prices are the way to try to avoid shortages. Um, Katie, just a real quick question on the gas prices on the seasonal aspect. Why, why did gas prices change on a seasonal level? I think two big reasons. One is, you know, summertime is travel season. People are out of school, <clears throat> excuse me, and so demand goes up. Uh, but a- another reason is the EPA requires a special summertime blend from, I think it's June 1st to the middle of September, uh, to comply with uh, air regulations. And so that blend is more expensive. And it also costs refiners something to transition out of that cheaper winter blend and into the summertime blend. Okay, I'm going to come right back to you. Um, it's kind of hard to believe, but there are some cities that are looking to block the creation of new gas stations and even block the addition of new pumps at existing stations. In fact, right now there's a proposal in Los Angeles to do just that. So what's your quick take on that? Well, you know, we've talked a lot about the supply side of this, and I think there's a a very large conversation on the demand side of this that policies like LA's um, and certainly some in the, the federal side are trying to uh, constrain demand for the long term. So they're, they're hitting uh, hitting this equation from both sides, supply and demand. And, and I think, you know, what I said earlier, 90% of our transportation energy needs are met by oil products. Uh, to me, that's not changing quickly. And so ideas like this, policies like this, to force demand away from one source of energy and onto things like electric vehicles or hybrids, um, I think there's going to be a lot of collateral damage, again, because it's not connected with reality and how Americans use energy. So, Kay, I think it's a critical point for people to understand that the we, we do focus on a lot on the production side and and the distribution, but a lot of policymakers are trying to just change consumer demand and actually prohibit what people can actually use. So I think it's important for people to understand that other side. And one thing we didn't mention is not the gas prices, but deals with natural gas. One of our colleagues, Rachel Wolpert, wrote a piece on these prohibitions in certain cities and even states um, blocking new hookups for natural gas appliances in new residential and commercial buildings. So for some people out there that like their want a a new natural gas stove, for example, or a fireplace, you may be out of luck soon. And so there's a lot of focus, not just on the the supply side or the production side, but also there are people a little bit more, I would say, on the extreme left side trying to address some of the use um, aspects, use issues to try to restrict overall the uh, fossil fuels in our country. So let's get to policy recommendations. You're Derek, can I, can I actually say something about that? I mean, with those gas spans, I mean, because those are, those are, those, so let me, um, you know, let me say a couple things about that. So, so I think one thing to note is, you know, although we might think about, oh, do we, you know, we want a natural gas stove? I, I think it's really important to think about how that affects our energy system 
in terms of heating, because it's important to understand, you know, one of the reasons that Texas got into trouble in the winter storm of 2021 is because we do rely on a lot of electricity for heating rather than um, natural gas. And as it turns out, you know, electric heating is just very inefficient compared to um, natural gas heating, because as you can imagine, our, especially during times of stress, when we don't have enough power, our electric system mostly relies on natural gas. So if you could send that natural gas to the home and burn it for heat, that's pretty efficient compared to sending the natural gas to a power plant where it's burned for heat that's turned into electricity that's sent to your house that's turned back into heat. And so basically it uses two and a half times as much natural gas to go through that indirect process as just to send the natural gas to your house directly. So obviously that's both an economic and an environmental problem. Now you would, might wonder why would environmental groups then support sending um, this less efficient process that causes more natural gas to be burned and frankly makes our, um, you know, it makes it much more dangerous during, uh, you know, winter storms and during cold snaps. You know, and the, and the short answer is, again, it's about these sort of unrealistic projections of the future because the view of, you know, the environmental groups is that, you know, contrary um, to what, you know, we've seen in terms of the challenges of, uh, you know, I favor more renewable energy, but it's challenging to go to a very high penetration of uh, renewable energy. The, um, you know, what they're imagining is, well, yeah, sure, right now, switching to electric heat just actually pollutes more and means you use more natural gas. But in the future, you know, in five years, we're going to have a completely renewable grid or maybe a completely nuclear grid or whatever. And that's, a, that's an extremely unrealistic prediction. But because that is the prediction in their mind, they're not worried about all the pollution and economic damage that it's causing in the meantime. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a you know, really big problem. And, you know, the other thing I just wanted to say, you know, um, related to this idea of shutting down gas stations or stopping, um, you know, gas, uh, you know, the opportunities gas. I mean, th with the gas stations, it's important for people to understand if gas, uh, gasoline prices are going to come down and fuel prices are going to come down and we're going to have less inflation, there are two ways that this can happen. One way is that we, uh, we increase supply. And as we've talked about, you know, unfortunately, so far, the Biden administration looks like they're doing the reverse. They're doing nothing to increase supply. They're doing everything to restrain supply. The other way that gasoline prices, energy prices, inflation will come down, unfortunately, is that demand decreases. And the way that you decrease demand is that you have everybody get poorer. Right? You have a recession, you have an economic slowdown, et cetera. And so moving forward, if we don't want to have that recession, if we don't want to have that economic slowdown, you need to increase supply. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm worried it may already be too late that we're kind of destined for that way of lowering um, energy prices and lowering inflation. But it's just a bad way to do it. And so instead, we need to be thinking about ways that we can increase supply. So as we wrap up, I'd like each of you to provide some key takeaways that you think listeners should take with them. And, and, and when you list some, some of your key takeaways, think about maybe some policy solutions you recommend to policymakers to kind of adopt, not to do, something not to do. So what are some key takeaways for listeners and maybe for some policymakers as we wrap up? And Katie, let's start with you. Well, you know, I think we have highlighted a lot of policy choices, and I think that's the right 
word for that. These are choices <laughs> um, along the way. Going back to that question, Darren, you asked about the, the pie chart, you know, taxes, distribution, refining crude oil. There are policy choices in each of those steps that feed into the price of gasoline. Uh, but kind of looking at both this supply and demand side as far as what I think the policy choices in the future should look like, you know, I think we need to, uh, the federal government needs to allow increased production on federal lands and waters. And in some cases, that literally means just follow the laws on the books right now. Uh, and the administration is not doing that at the moment. Um, secondly, I'd say, you know, remove barriers to production on state and private lands, going kind of back to what we were saying earlier about potential EPA ozone regulations and how that might inhibit um, state and private land production. I think I'd say also um, relieve those policy choke points at uh, that kind of more midstream angle of, you know, relieving burdens on refineries that are policy-induced, so renewable fuel standard, those kinds of things, Jones Act. Um, and more on the supply side of, or demand side of things, I'd say allow Americans to invest in projects and companies that they think are worthwhile without the fear of political retribution. We didn't talk a lot about this, but there's a lot of, uh, I think, dangerous nexus between the private sector and federally mandated ESG-type regulations that are have, uh, I think, long-term scary implications for oil production, gasoline, those kinds of issues. And then last, you know, it kind of gets what we were saying, too, towards the end of this conversation about protect Americans' ability to choose uh, what they want to use, whether that's an electric vehicle or a conventional internal combustion engine. And there's a lot of regulatory activity on that side of things that are trying to uh, constrain Americans' ability to choose, which ultimately impacts supply. So I think that's how I'd, I'd kind of uh, lay out the buckets of where I think policy reform needs to happen. James, what are some key takeaways from you? I think the most important thing is that we all understand that the prices that we see at the at the grocery store, at the pump, those are determined by supply and demand. We know that there are some other arguments out there, but you know, those are not, there are no serious uh, people looking at this problem who, you know, think this is a result of unused leases or, you know, all this for the first time, you know, companies got greedy. And so you don't need to take those arguments seriously. But we do need to take uh, supply and demand seriously. And so we need to be looking at policies to increase supply uh, not of all types of energy, not just uh, not just oil and gas, but also uh, renewable energy, nuclear, uh, et cetera. And so we need to be looking for those specific policies, like making it easier to drill for oil and gas, making it easier to build a pipeline, making it easier to expand a refinery, make it easier to survive environmental review that will increase supply so that prices can go down because of abundance rather than because of economic pain. James and Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'm Darren Back, Senior Research Fellow in Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed the second edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.